Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you connected to what's going on in Israel and give you some insight behind the headlines. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Going good, Mike. Thanks for getting my name right. You know, you keep saying that, but I've been getting it right mostly for quite some time now. I know. I, f- I feel like the positive reinforcement is helping. Oh, that may be it. You may have put your <laughs> finger on it. Um, I'm sure everyone can tell that it's a Skype episode. We're doing another interview. Alan, would you like to introduce our guest? Yes, our guest is Dr. Steve Klein, a very dear old uh, friend and colleague um, who's an editor at Aretz and also, uh, oh, is it an adjunct professor, Steve? Or You can call it adjunct. Adjunct professor at Tel Aviv University in um, teaching Arab-Israeli conflict. What else do you teach? I teach, I don't teach Arab-Israeli conflict, actually. I teach political approaches to international conflict. I will be teaching a course on democracy and ethnically divided societies. And at Ben-Gurion University, I teach one course on minorities of Israel and another course on lost and isolated Jewish communities. Wow. So, it's, yeah, quite, quite runs the gamut. That's, yeah, that keeps you pretty busy uh, with also uh, at the arts, I guess. Yes, yes. Well, I'm I just thinking about. I'm just thinking. Work. I'm just thinking about the commute down south to the to Ben Gurion University to get to the Negev. Oh, it's a beautiful commute because I take the train. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's very nice. But what's nice about my work is that my day job is working nights at Haaretz, and my a uh, moonlighting job is teaching in the daytime at universities. Oh, great. So that's, uh, that's moved on from our years together at the Young Judea Year course, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, so we asked Steve, who's also, uh, his PhD is in conflict management. You see he does a lot of that teaching. To come and maybe talk with us about the ramifications of the recent uh, UN General Assembly resolution condemning uh, President Trump and America stand on Jerusalem uh, as the capital of Israel, and what is that, ramifications for the peace process, is there anything happening now, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, the general um, recent brouhaha with all the, uh, with what America's doing, with what's going on, how the international community is reacting to current events. Mm-hmm. And if there's going to be really any change on the ground. Right. Well, I think if we start with that last question, I think the the simple answer is no. There's <laughs> not going to be real change on the ground. You saw there was I knew protest, it. And, and I take <laughs> it seriously. I mean, I take it seriously, the violence. There were people who, who died. And so that's always very tragic and I think unnecessary in many ways. But in the long term, it doesn't change anything because the... The PLO, the the, the Palestinian Authority, which rules in the West Bank, they have a heavy interest in maintaining the status quo with Israel. Hamas has an interest in maintaining the status quo, and they're over in Gaza. The Israeli government has an interest in maintaining the status quo. And the Palestinian people in the West Bank, in particular, they have a lot of frustration, but they're not organized enough without any manipulation from above by the elites, there's no one to lead them to make a sustainable resistance or uh, any other kind of 
Well, lead for lead to change. You know, sustainable resistance to to Israel to try to organize politically against the against the the, the Trump recognition, can which go, ultimately is symbolic. Can you go through those and explain them? Why why is it that uh, the Palestinian Authority or Fatah Party or whatever it is, uh, it's in their interest to keep the status quo? Why is it in Hamas's interest to keep the status quo? I think people have a sense that. I think Israel is less confusing probably to most listeners, but why Why would those two, the West Bank leadership and the Gaza leadership, want the status quo maintained? Okay, yeah, absolutely. First of all, an important premise in, in conflict management theory, which is very hard for people to grasp when they see things anecdotally, is that you're talking about rational actors. Each political group, they have their own interests, they are trying to obtain power or to maintain power. And so they will act accordingly to what they see will serve those interests in the long term, um, which is very they, different than, say, someone going off and, and, and committing a random terror attack, which is usually out of desperation. Those leaders might be wrong. They might be wrong. In other words, they may have assessed incorrectly. They may have the wrong ideas about what's going to better their situation. But in their rational view they're acting in what they think is their best interest. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Because if your view, if your worldview is informed by religious belief, so it'll be rational for you to take a certain course of action because you, you believe that God is on your side and that you're going to, you'll be vindicated, that you will vanquish your enemy, even if it takes a hundred years or a hundred generations. And so that will definitely change it. But I there think, is very I, I, much I do a short think that, term. Uh, if I could just interrupt one second. I do think that in the West, we, we, we don't get that. Like, I think very often people in the West say, like, I'll just give a, a, a simple example. When ISIS invites Western powers to come in and throw them out of Iraq and Syria, or I should say that in the past tense, people, yes. th- people in the West describe that as crazy and irrational. But what you're saying is we should describe that as rational based on their beliefs. That's a, yes, help, exactly. a more helpful model. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and part of the model, there's a, there's a, a scholar called uh, Robert Axelrod who wrote a very seminal work called The Evolution of Cooperation. And what he talked about is how uh, organisms, people, organizations, nations, they will cooperate over time, even without trust, even without necessarily noticing what they're doing, um, based on their perception of how many times they're going to have an encounter with their their rival or their enemy, whatever you want to call them. There's a classic idea of the prisoner's dilemma. I don't know if you're familiar with that. We have two prisoners and they're they're offered you know two choices. Neither of them are are so great. But uh, the interesting thing about it is that is that if you look at this model where if you uh, if you don't have any information about the other person, so it's always in your, in your interest to cheat because if you tattletale on your partner, so then you'll get off free and he'll go to jail for a longer time. Um, so if he cooperates and you don't, so then you'll you'll do better. Whereas uh, if he doesn't cooperate, it's still in your interest to cheat because then if neither side is cooperating, so then the, you know, the police don't have their information and so they're not able to put you away for as long as, as they would like to. So there's a strange thing, but the, but the reality though is that over time, it's actually in, in your interest to cooperate with your rival because you can actually 
we create more solutions and you can have sustainability as opposed to constantly uh, eroding and damaging and having being in a mutually destructive relationship. But people don't see it when they don't cooperate. And, and if it's a, if you think that the amount of time you're going to have to encounter this other person is limited, so then it's in your interest to cheat. Because if you start from the very last move, it's in your interest of your last move to cheat. Um, so if it's in your interest of your last move, so it's your second to last move, third to last move, and it works back all the way to your first move. Whereas if you don't know how many times you're going to encounter this person, so then you begin to cooperate with them because you you don't know how long it's going to last and eventually you'll deplete your, your resources. You'll never get out of this dilemma. Um, and so, so we see, this, for example, how does this well, it plays out. The, the classic example is World War One with the soldiers along the front, the front lines where they, um, you know, they were shooting at each other. And then the lines, when they dug the trenches and trench warfare, they were, it was very static. And so the soldiers realized that, you know, they're, they're, they weren't going to vanquish their enemy. They weren't going anywhere. And so they started developing uh, ways of cooperating, even without actually speaking to each other. They didn't have to speak. They could just communicate their, um, their intentions. And the strategy of cooperation is it's called tit for tat, which is that basically you cooperate on your first move and then you react to whatever the person does. Whatever their last move is becomes your next move. And what that does is you, you create an interdependency. You say, I can't decide what I'm going to do. You're going to decide what I'm going to do. If you cheat, then I'll cheat. If you cooperate, I'll cooperate. And so they started cooperating in that way by saying, okay, you know, if you have to fire your artillery at us, do it only at five o'clock, do it between five and six. And then they could go out, have their afternoon tea, go into the bunker between five and six, and then go out and have dinner. And the, and the soldiers, and that was how the cooperation went. Of course, the generals were furious about it. And the generals were trying to find all kinds of ways to um, get them to stop cooperating. And the only way they were able to get them to stop cooperating was actually by mixing up the soldiers, moving them to different parts of the line so that you didn't have a common language with your rival, with your enemy anymore. You see? So how does, so that, here, so how does that apply? How well, does it apply the, way to it, the way it applies is that so with, with religious faith, if you have a belief that you will defeat your enemy and it's, it's, it's imminent. So you have no reason to cooperate. Or if you believe that you are going to die and go to heaven and get 70 virgins if you're killed by your enemy. So logically, that's, that's actually better. From a rational perspective, that's better. I mean, ask uh, you know, the, some of these Palestinians who have, who have uh, gone on these raids where they actually got themselves killed or got themselves arrested. They're living in a situation, especially the girls, for example, who, you know, they face abuse at home. They face, um, you know, maybe sexual abuse. And the only way out of, for them is to go and get shot or killed by a soldier. Because if you're killed, your family will get rewarded. If you're jailed, you'll be taken away from your tormentor and your family will still get monetarily compensated. So with ISIS, there was no, there was no motivation on their side. Logically, there was no reason for them to cooperate. And so it was... So it was worth it to them to keep on fighting. What we do see as the war has wound down is that there are some who they've had gone through a paradigm change. They've seen that they've lost and they realize they've internalized it. But and so they're willing to, to cooperate, to surrender. But, the, you know, there's no negotiations going on. So would you put like Hamas in the same category as that? Well, how, how does this explain uh, the West Bank and the Gazan Palestinians? 
it exp- it explains some of it, but I think with Hamas, the their line of thinking has has changed. I mean, for one thing, their concept of defeating Israel is very long term. It's not imminent. It's not like ISIS, who they believe that they were on the verge of this caliphate, which is going to bring the you know the you know the Mahdi, the you know the the Islamic Messiah. For Hamas, they're very. I think they're very down to earth in that sense, and you can see it in the way that when the violence started and you had these uh, Salafi groups starting to fire rockets at Israel, that Hamas bore down very hard on them, uh, doing things including, you know, there are reports of torturing, arresting these people to stop the rocket fire because they do not want an escalation. For Hamas, their their interest is maintaining power, control over Gaza, um, maintaining a deterrence against Israel, they know that it's not in their interest to go to war with, with Israel. It will be very costly for them. And they also don't know, um, you know, if they'll be taken down the next time, you know, if the leadership will, will actually pay with their, the price by actually being knocked out completely. So, so basically, Hamas basically is very you're saying... It's not as they think that what's in the best interest of the Palestinian people is overthrowing Israel, but in the short term, anything they do aggressively to make that happen will very probably throw them out of power. So they're setting their takeover Israel plan as long term and trying to maintain the status quo in the short term. That is correct. They are at this point they are risk averse. And the same back in a few years ago, they were more aggressive, partly because they saw things like. The you know the disengagement, they uh, Olmert's offer to Abbas, and I think they felt that Israel was on the defensive and they could exploit that. But after three rounds of fighting with Israel, they realized that that's not going to be the solution. So what's their long term? Long term. Long term plan, I think, is is the hope that they will eventually, that there will be erosion of support for Israel over the long term, that that demographically the Palestinians will eventually become the majority west of the Jordan River. Um, And that they also have to hope for some kind of a, of a, of a Muslim miracle, that there'll be some kind of a divine intervention that will turn Arab states against Israel that will turn, you know, maybe some of the, Kafir states against Israel, uh, but they're they're in it for the long term. But in the, in the short term, they can't afford to to just you know provoke a provoke a military conflict that doesn't serve their their short term interests. Just when you say Kafir state, you mean state, Arab yeah. and Muslim countries that don't subscribe to their version of Islam? Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. And, and and is that the same dynamic in the West Bank with the Palestinian leadership? That same sort of uh, that seems the Palestinian leadership in the West Bank making the same with, without the religious without the religious addition that you added to the Hamas thinking. I would I wouldn't say it's the same. I would say it's less so also because Abbas has more to lose. He is more invested in the Oslo relationship with Israel. It is. The basis of Palestinian legitimacy. Hamas still doesn't enjoy international legitimacy. The Palestinian Authority does. You could see it. There was a vote in the UN. We we focus on the the Trump vote, 
But there was a vote the day before in the U.N. where they voted on a resolution on the permanent sovereignty of the Palestinian people in the occupied Palestinian territory, including East Jerusalem. And that vote passed by 163 to 6 with 11 abstentions. Uh, So that enjoys a lot of legitimacy. The Palestinian Authority also derives its legitimacy towards the international community and regarding Israel through its military cooperation and security cooperation with Israel. And it's something that the Palestinians don't get a lot of credit for. Part of it is because I think of Netanyahu's rhetoric. Part of it is because they don't like to advertise it because Abbas does not like being portrayed as a traitor, which he often is, and a collaborator. But effectively, since Abbas took over, the Palestinian Authority has engaged in very intense security cooperation, the very quiet security cooperation, in order to maintain uh, uh, peace and quiet in the West Bank. Well, it's quiet then, outside uh, the West Bank, but, among, it, but in the West Bank, I'm sure, I'm sure it's felt very strongly. Yeah, felt in the West, yeah, absolutely, in, in the West Bank, but also they have thwarted many attacks that were, you know, originating in the West Bank and targeting Israel. It's, but it's, it's, isn't it an interest of both sides to keep that quiet? Because Israel kind of keeps that quiet, too. Yeah, yeah, Israel also. Israel also, it's in their interest to keep it quiet. Look, in, in, a, conf, in, a, in, a, in a conflict like this, like these, these conflicts are known as asymmetric conflicts, right? Because Israel is the stronger power in every way. It has the full legitimacy. It has economic power relative to the Palestinian Authority. It has diplomatic power in that it has all these, these embassies. It has military power. And that gap, that asymmetric gap, expands every day, right? Because every day Israel is spending millions of dollars in improving its military, uh, whereas the Palestinian Authority has maybe thousands of dollars to improve its capability. So that gap grows all the time. And in an asymmetric conflict, this goes across the board everywhere in the world you are, the interest of the more powerful entity is always to maintain the status quo. Because it always will serve the interest of that power, because it will accumulate more military power, more economic power, and it will prevent the other side from gaining uh, any kind of diplomatic legitimacy, hopefully. So then could you say that Israel traditionally has not gone along that? I mean, Israel has entered all kinds of peace agreements when it was the the asymmetric power, did not fit that model. Well, you're talking about Jordan or Egypt? No, I'm talking about Oslo and the the Barak offer and Ehud Omar offer. Like, why why would Israel make any of these offers if we're so overwhelmed? Uh, okay, well, well, there, there you're talking about other things. First of all, in 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 these conflicts, especially when you're talking about um, internal conflicts, there is a there is a, a, a an idea of whether or not a conflict is is right for resolution, and the the, the rightness is very disputable, and it's it's very tautological because you often only know if it's right, you know, if there's peace, and if it's there's no peace, it wasn't right. But what motivates people to start negotiating in the first place is that they reach what they consider as a mutually hurting stalemate. And this mutually hurting stalemate is very subjective. You can look at it from the outside and say, oh, yeah, objectively, you can see there are deaths on both sides and their economy is stagnating and they're being condemned in the United Nations. But every country has its own tolerance for 
how much hurt they're willing to accept, how much pain they're willing to accept. And I think that if you look back at the original Oslo, Israel did feel much more pain. It's, I would say its tolerance for pain has increased uh, significantly since 1993. If you look at the first intifada, I mean, it's a, it's a joke compared to the second intifada in terms of how many people were dying or the kinds of attacks that were happening. But Israel could feel a lot of pressure. Israelis, uh, there was a poll done just before the first intifada broke out where fewer than 10% of Israelis uh, even considered the idea of Palestinian statehood, let alone, you know, autonomy. And um, I mean, autonomy, let alone statehood. And, and within a year, you had a majority of the population that were willing to, to consider Palestinian autonomy uh, because Israelis felt, you know, this is not a price that we wanted to pay. This is not the dream that we had when we defeated the armies of, you know, the Arab countries in 67 and 73. So, uh, and there was another factor that there's, there, there is, um, there's, there's been research done that apparently Rabin already feared Iran, and he believed that, um, he believed the narrative that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was a, uh, an obstacle to Israel normalizing relations with the Arab and Muslim world, and he saw the threat of Iran coming, and he wanted to settle the Palestinian issue so that there could be unity against Iran. Uh, which ironically ties a little bit to what's going on now, because in some ways uh, there's an interpretation of what Trump's decision did, which is that it, this Trump recognition of Jerusalem has indirectly uh, served Iran's interests more than anyone else. Um, but so, this, so there was that, and the, with the second intifada, so the second intifada created another uh, hurting stalemate that Barack tried to get out of. Um, and then there's also the idea that, that uh, democratic countries, and I consider Israel a democratic country, uh, that there are, there are these bounded norms that democratic countries have uh, being part of the international community, and that Israel recognizes, uh, or at least previous governments have recognized, that there is an international norm, there, are, there is an international will. Uh, Israel became a, it was admitted to the United Nations partly on the pledge that it would abide by UN resolutions, including Security Council resolutions. So if Israel wants to be with the program, so then they, they need to recognize, uh, you know, if you believe that, if you, if you believe in that narrative, then you believe that Israel should do, make its best efforts to, um, to settle the conflict once and for all. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the, the hurting stalemate can also be something in the long term. If you see in the long term, uh, like, like the way uh, uh, Ariel Sharon said, you know, I have no interest in ruling over, you know, two million, three million Palestinians. So you can still see it as serving your interest. And that's the big difference, I would say, between Netanyahu and someone like Olmert. That Olmert saw it in Israel's long term interest to settle the conflict, even though Israel enjoyed an asymmetric, uh, um, you know, advantage. But uh, he felt that this would, in the long term, be best for Israel. If you see the conflict as a zero-sum game, as Netanyahu does, then you want to maintain the asymmetric balance. You see the difference? Uh, meaning that Netanyahu doesn't really see the long term any kind of benefit of solving the problem. Correct. Right? Correct. Why not? He just wants to rule over two, three million people? Why? And he's not an idiot. No, I wouldn't say he wants to rule over two or three million people. But I mean, even a couple of years ago, he said, you asked me if we have to 
live forever by the sword? I say yes. And I think he believes that. I think that he believes. Uh, and you, you have to remember, he's also a product of his father, who was right-hand man of Jabotinsky, the founder of, you know, revi- of, of revisionism. And Netanyahu takes the interpretation that we have to create this figurative and, and literal iron wall. Right. Why? But why? Because he does not believe that the Palestinians are ever going to give up on the dream of their one-state solution, which is the destruction of Israel. Right. So then what does he plan to do with the millions of Palestinians who live west of the Jordan? I think that in what Netanyahu plans to do is to maintain the Palestinian Authority and Hamas at a distance. I think that Hamas serves Netanyahu's interests as well because it's the bogeyman that he can always present. It's the, it's the eternal enemy that he can always point to and prove. You see, they, they, you know, they, uh, uh, they want to destroy Israel. And you can see it on their rhetoric. I mean, and, and you see it also in, uh, now and again in, in the rhetoric among the, Palis- the, the Palestinian Authority as well, or at least the PLO. That are you know calls for Israel's destruction or speak speaking of Israel's eventual demise. You know there's uh you know there there are there are uh, discussion groups in the in the Muslim world that uh, I mean, that there's a prophecy that Israel will be destroyed in 2022. Or even so, in mainstream even a mainstream Palestinian like Abbas who deny really any historical connection that we have to this land that that's problematic. I mean and that's what it would seem to me to not be, you know, so out there to think in Netanyahu's way. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't say, look, it is very rational. I do not, right. I would not say that Netanyahu is an irrational actor. So if all the- working on, look, everyone has a narrative, correct? And so your narrative informs how you interpret information. Right. So anything that feeds your narrative, you're going to latch on more strongly and say, this is the proof. And anything that clashes with your narrative uh, you're going to tend to reject, and it's going to take a very overwhelming force rege- of you know rejections before you're going to have a paradigm shift. So for Netanyahu, he can look at things like the you know the 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 the, the PLO plan of stages that Arafat launched in 1974, and you can see how that's played out. That they've gotten you know they started with Gaza and Jericho, they expanded parts of West Bank. Um, so there, there's, there is plenty of fodder, and, the, and the, the Palestinians, even this last thing of the Palestinians rejecting, um, you know, any any um, Jewish, Jewish advances by the no by the by the United States in, in wake oh. of the Trump declaration to say, okay, we no yeah. longer accept uh, Trump as a as an honest broker as a mediator. America. That's good for Netanyahu. That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's good for Netanyahu because Netanyahu says that that confirms that the Palestinians are not serious about peace. They're not willing to make the concessions necessary. And let's face it: if you look both at at Camp David with Arafat in two thousand and with the Omerita Abbas meetings in two thousand eight, it's not just that Abbas said after. 2008, listen, the gaps were too wide, we couldn't reach agreement. Neither Arafat nor Abbas ever even made a counteroffer. Right? right? The moment that the Palestinian side makes a counteroffer, so then you have, then you, then you have a bar, what's called a bargaining zone. You can say, okay, this is your minimum, this is my minimum, let's see if there's an overlap, 
And if there's a space between what your, you know, what, you know, what your minimum is and what my, your maximum is and, and my minimum and my maximum, if there's some overlap there, so then we have a bargaining zone. We can start really seriously negotiating. But he never even presented what his, what his maximum is. So if all the local actors are, are deep, it's in, their per, it's in their personal interest to maintain the status quo, what role does yes. all this international pressure play from the UN or from different countries on, on the local actors who can't, re- in, their best, in their own opinion, they cannot, uh, they cannot respond to that pressure? So then what does the pressure do? I don't think the pressure is really that serious. I think it is mostly rhetorical. If you look at the relationships that Israel has with the countries who voted yes, um, you know, for the resolution, they're mainly hostile. Israel doesn't trade with a lot of these countries, you know, Arab and Muslim countries, and so that's not going to affect them. The biggest problem you could say is Europe, right? Because Europe is a block. Uh, voted against uh, the Trump recognition of Jerusalem, and and all the all the European states voted in this UN um, General Assembly resolution uh, to rec- you know to to recognize that Palestinians deserve self determination. But look at the the training that goes on. Look at year to year how Israel's imports and exports expands with all these countries. No one is punishing Israel diplomatically or economically for what's going on. They're not, you know. Who just canceled her concert? Who just canceled her concert here? Lord Lord D, Lord, however you say Lord, yeah, from New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, that's something. Those are very ephemeral victories of the BDS movement. But for every I think think it's rhetorical. Rather than just, it's. Maybe the word rhetorical doesn't fit, but it's symbolic. In other words, the pressure ultimately is all symbolic and there's no real content. Although I would say that in, in the world of uh, – don't you think that in the world of international politics, symbolism matters because it creates perception and that – I mean you're right that it has none, – none of this pressure has teeth. But the symbolic thing does fray, certainly at, uh, at, at Israeli feelings and thinkings. Yeah, I mean I think I – think- you know, like they say, whatever, with sticks and stones and things like that. Words do seem to hurt Israel, and Israel does take offense to it. But it still doesn't change anything. I mean, I think it can affect ideas. I think it can affect, certainly on the, on the ground level, um, grassroots level, people organizing. They, certainly in Europe, they feel strengthened by their country's position. But that doesn't, at the end of the day, go as far as the economics. You know, if you look at the, you know, the, you know, the arms trading, the technology, everyone wants what Israel has to offer. You know, Israel's story is, in, in many ways, is not that different from China's story. You know, that China, you know, being this communist country was, was you know, an, an outsider, um, you know, until, you know, Deng, you know pretty much Deng Xiaoping's reform. And then, you know, in the 90s, there was, you know, beginning to have changes there. And then, you know, when it joined the World Trade Organization, boom, that was it. You know, I mean, there's no going back. It doesn't matter what China does, how many political prisoners it has, or how many times it threatens uh, other countries in the South China Sea. Everyone wants those cheap toys and cheap clothes and everything else that China has and and cheap gadgets. And they're going to keep going for it. And it's the same thing with Israel. 
none of these countries, you know, multinational corporations have a lot of power, a lot of influence over government. And they're not going to they're not going to back down. And even Israel, like, I mean, there are things that you can see that there are changes. For example, Israel, uh, you know, just recently signed an agreement with the EU and they, they did a similar one with a science agreement where they agreed to get funding on condition that um, that no funding went to anything that was West Bank or uh, based. So in some ways, Israel is agreeing to its, you know, to a boycott of the territories in exchange uh-huh. for uh, not boycotting Israel, uh, because right. ultimately those, you know, those financial uh, deals uh, serve Israel's interests. So even Israel's, you know, so if Israel's willing to turn on the West Bank, and, it, and we're talking about a Netanyahu government on one or two issues. Why should we expect Europe to not turn against the West Bank? But even as they turn against the West Bank or even as they label products in the, you know, that are settlement based, they still, uh, they, they still want to trade with Israel. Well, it so seems to me, yes. It seems to me like the ramifications you're saying is that the UN is, doesn't have all that much other than symbolic, really, uh, influence. It doesn't have anything more than symbolic influence in a in a conflict like Israel's with the Palestinians, uh-huh. where one side is so totally in control of the situation that it doesn't need and it isn't relatively impervious to uh, UN interference, especially when it has the United States as its best friend. The UN does things when it's when you're talking about you know providing uh, agricultural aid in third world countries. When it comes to sending peacekeepers to smaller conflicts where, uh, you know, where, where, there, where there's more symmetry between the two sides and there's a lot of destruction and there's a, maybe a dysfunctional state or a failed state. So then the U.N. can get involved, but there's nothing that the U.N. really has to contribute. And I frankly don't think the U- Israel has anything to worry about it. And if we get back to the Trump... Uh, um shmoom. You're basically saying um shmoom. Yeah, yeah, Ben Gurion was right. I mean, you do play, you know, you which do play means, ball. Which means the equivalent of UN, who cares? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, who, care, who cares about the UN? Although, I mean, Israel does care because Israel does care about its imaging. It cares about its branding. And so, you know, so when Israel can get recognized or it can get one of its ambassadors to be on a committee, so it's very happy to do that. Um, but it's more that, the, that the, all the anti-resolution, anti-Israel resolutions I would say do more damage than are constructive because they simply feed into Israel's narrative to say, you see, the world is against us. Right. And, uh, you know, and the, the, the question shouldn't be, why is Israel, why is the world against us? The question should be, why is the, why is the world or why are the Western European nations voting against Israel on this issue? And that leads mm-hmm. to a different, a different conversation. And as far as the, the, the Trump, the condemnation of Trump, it really was more about Trump. It was not about Israel. But unfortunately, the, the, what, where I think Trump messes us up uh, in his incompetence is that, is that what he does is he does something, again, that's symbolic, but it's not real because he's not moving the embassy tomorrow. And Dan Shapiro, who is the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Israel, Obama, who also, by the way, supports moving moving the embassy to Jerusalem, said, you can do it tomorrow. We have a consulate, right? It's down on Grown Street in downtown Jerusalem. Just put a sign and say, this is now the embassy. Downgrade the embassy in Tel Aviv to consulate. You can do it tomorrow, but he doesn't do it. And right. instead, what's happened is that 
is that now he's created division. That's why Iran is happy about this, is because Iran sees division between the United States and the other countries who are trying to, you know, who, who all signed on to this nuclear deal um, you know, last year. Right. And so with, with, by sowing division among the, among the allies, it makes it hard to unify against Israel if, if there is a need to, to act against Iran. So that's where it doesn't serve Israel's long-term interests, I think, in, in doing right. that. And so at the end of the day, it didn't, didn't really change anything. It just created a lot of, uh, you know, a, a, spur, a surge of violence on the ground, a which lot is of, unnecessary and, and tragic. A lot of money for the media. Sound and fury yeah. signifying yeah. nothing. Uh, Steve, it's the last week of uh, of December of 2017. So maybe to wrap up, any predictions for 2018? Is Duke going to win the uh, <laughs> the March no, Madness? Go, no, Duke will go bow out in the second round. Okay. And um, and as far as uh, here goes, uh, this is my big prediction: is that uh, once again Israel will not pull out of the Golan Heights, nor will Israel <laughs> sign, nor will Israel sign any. <laughs> I've been saying this since 1992, ever since the first uh, Golan uh, protest, the people are with the Golan. And, uh, and, and secondly, there will be no uh, breakthrough on the Israeli-Palestinian front in 2018. Right. Okay. All right. Mike, well, any predictions for you? Mike, any predictions? I predict that Israel will not pull out of Tel Aviv in the upcoming year. <laughs> Alan? I would say that I'm not going to bet against you, <laughs> even though even though I would like to see it happen. And the Eagles have the best record in football after last night's win over Oakland. I'd still say they're not going to win the Super Bowl. I hate, I'm sorry. I'm a non-believer. <laughs> well, as a guy who doesn't really get sports, but can talk for hours and hours about Star Trek, <laughs> I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> well, I would say I would agree with both of you that and Israel probably, I would assume, will not pull out of Ashkelon either. I think we're all we're all predicting that we should all settle into a, a nice, cozy, but intolerable status quo. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. Sad, sad, but true. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Steve. We really appreciate it. Thanks, You're Steve. All right. My pleasure. OK, thanks, Alan. Thanks, Mike. Okay, bye-bye. See you next year. <laughs> You've been listening to the Jerusalem U Podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. The Teacher's Lounge is produced by Matthew Lippman. You can subscribe to our podcast pretty much anywhere where you can find any podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. And we'd really appreciate if you would give us feedback and ratings in those places and recommend it to your friends. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>